there's been a lot of them. After Dad got me started off with the Old Testament, I had a whole bunch of other men that just poured themselves into me, and I'm grateful. Um, you don't know any of them. There's no buildings named after any of them. They weren't famous for anything. Most of them were farmers. One of them made tractor seats for a small manufacturing plant. One pastored our small country church. One managed a small lumberyard, and one was a zookeeper. So they've come from a variety of places, but they were all faithful men. And uh, they just quietly went about the next thing that God gave them to do. And as I read through Ezra, I know he was a trained man, but he was a quiet, faithful man also. And uh, God used him also to play a major point in a lot of the Israelites' life at a key time of when they needed restoration. <clears throat> Over the next two weeks, we're going to take a look at uh, a period in the life of God's people that we call the return stage when they come back to Jerusalem after 70 years of captivity. Today, we're going to look at the relatively small book of Ezra, 10 chapters, and next week at the book of Nehemiah. The Hebrew Bible has these two books together as a single book, and Ezra, actually, Scott, you're late. <laughs> and Ezra actually seems to be an extension of Chronicles. The last chapter of Chronicles, chapter 36, I think Michael read that last week, verse 22 says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and to put it in writing. Guess how Ezra 1 verse 1 starts? Exactly the same way. Uh, now, I'm not trying to be a gloomy Gus or negative thinker, but I do have to admit that when I go into some homes, there's a, a sign saying, and I've always had a particular uh, note of that. Uh, if you have it up there, don't take it down or refuse to invite me over. But I won't think worse of you about it. But I do think of it. The verse is Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope in the future. That's a great verse. But it stands alone in some ways unless we back up one verse to verse 10 where the Lord says, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, and then I will come to you and fulfill my gracious promise to bring you back to this place. Those are not 70 insignificant years for them, but rather part of a painful process of the recognition of sin, personally and corporately, coming to grips with repentance, and then eventually returning to Jerusalem, the promised land, and the Lord. Some of us recognize that process up close and personal. I've never been to a real live puppet show, but I do have an, a bit of an idea how they work. 
Someone writes a story about some people and animals and places, and all those characters are made up in the form of a puppet. The scene or the box or the stage is called the castellet, where the activity takes place. Each puppeteer has a clear string attached to them, so they seem to be moving or talking or singing all by themselves. The key is that each string is attached to someone up above the castellet who controls their every movement. That person is a puppeteer, and you get where I'm going. The supreme puppeteer, God himself, before the foundations of the earth, determined who and what and why and when. Some call that sovereignty. This was true for his chosen people, and it's also true for everyone who had no desire for him or even recognized him. And it's true for us today. In order to understand what was happening in the lives of God's chosen nation during that time that Ezra and Nehemiah was written, let's take a look at the overhead. I do fancy overheads, lots of colored pictures, movement, everything. Or just one that somebody figures out how to put up. I appreciate that. Um, we see there in the United Kingdom with Saul and David and Solomon, there's 120 years there. And it was going relatively well. And then, of course, because of taxes, uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, there was a split. And so they divided into 10 northern tribes and then into the uh, southern tribes of uh, Judah and Benjamin. That was 200 years later, in 710, um, the northern kingdom, all 10 tribes were taken off by Assyria, and they never returned as a uh, nation or as those tribes. And in 612, Babylon, the king of Nebuchadnezzar, uh, defeats Assyria. You see the puppets all moving around, taking this one. He's bigger than that one. He's smaller than that one. People stand around and say, why is this happening? That kind of look like headlines today's paper. We aren't the first ones that did that. But the great puppeteer still had his strings. And don't ever forget that. In 605 and 597 and 586, Babylon moves into that territory and sieges around Jerusalem, takes captives, some, takes more, and eventually in 586 goes in and just smashes the place. Temple of Jerusalem went down, the walls went down, and we find these three attacks on Jerusalem recorded in the Second Kings 23 and 24 and 25. Michael last week uh, read also some of those in Chronicles. We read in chapter 25 that Nebuchadnezzar set fire to the temple of the Lord and all the houses of Jerusalem. It carried into exile the people who remained in the city but left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work the vineyards and the fields. <coughs> and they remained in exile in Babylon for 70 years, as was prophesied by Jeremiah. So who really were these people that were called the Israelites now living up in Babylon? 
Originally, they were the descendants of Abraham, who was told to leave the earth, Chaldees, in Genesis 11, and go to a land that I will show you. Then, then God's covenant, one of God's covenants, in chapter 12, he says that I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you, and all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. You can only go about 10 pages at a time without running into that concept. God says, I will bless you, I will curse you, but I caused you to be a blessing so that whether they're in Babylon or whether they're in Jerusalem or they're exiled or wherever they are, or if they're in downtown Lawrence, it's the so that part that God wrote that for. That just flows through scripture. Don't ever miss that. Um, Take Jacob and his family of 70 to Egypt and live with Joseph. And then there was a slavery for 400 years and the exodus to the promised land was 600,000 men plus the women and children. All totaling about 2 million. Actually on their way out of Egypt, uh, God added the rabble or a mixed crowd of Egyptians who followed them out of Egypt. Back in, and back in Numbers 11, some of them were mercenaries. <clears throat> and of course, they intermarried. Eventually, after 40 years in the wilderness, including all the deaths of everyone over age 20, they arrive in Canaan about 1400 BC with the same population, only it was a totally different crowd, except for Joshua and Caleb. Then after 120 years of Saul, David, and Solomon as kings, they split into the 10 northern tribes and the, and the two tribes of uh, Judah and Benjamin. And then the Assyrians in 721 took them and never heard from as a nation. That left the tribe of Judah who was captured and taken to Babylon during three separate deportations, 605, 597, and 586 in Kings 24 says that Nebuchadnezzar captured 10,000 Israelite men, including 7,000 soldiers, 10,000 craftsmen and artisans, but left only the poorest people of the land. He also removed all the treasures from the temple and the royal palace and gold from Solomon's temple. Ezekiel, just a little side, he just mentioned, and in the second 597, Oh yeah, and Ezekiel was in that bunch of that was taken off. And then 586, it just happens to mention, oh yeah, and Daniel was taken off in 586. This God of details says, I can't leave my people stranded over there. They need an Ezekiel that I can use. They need a Daniel to stand up regardless. Somebody has got to be their preacher. I just mentioned those two guys. Isn't it wonderful what God just slips in when I'm not paying attention? Um, it was estimated that Judah's population at that time was probably 120,000. But it seemed that probably only 25% of the total population was deported <coughs> with the poorest people to remain in Judah. Of note, 
Jeremiah was not taken captive, but he was left to counsel those remaining in Judah, as well as, as to prophesy to those taken captive. As recorded in chapter 29, this is the text of the letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders among the exiles and to the priests and prophets. I would have thought he would have said, those guys are going to be that way and they're going to take you. Don't follow them. Don't pay attention. Fight them. Jeremiah, by the Lord, says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Increase in number. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city. Pray to the Lord for it. For if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, that's what the Lord Almighty said. I'm glad he wrote instead of me. Now move ahead to approximately 539 B.C. as we open the book of Ezra. He's not referred to as the author, but based on the fact that in chapters 7 through 9 he refers to himself in the first person many times, we do have reason to believe that he may be. Just as there were three separate deportations of the tribe of Judah to Babylon, there was also three separate return trips back from Babylon to Jerusalem. They were in 538 with Zerubbabel, 458 with Ezra, and 445 with Nehemiah, with three different purposes. Zerubbabel was of the tribe of Judah, a descendant of David, and thus of the royal line. Ezra was from the tribe of Levi, a priest and a scribe. Obviously, every country today and then had a variety of styles of leadership. The Assyrians took captives, tortured them, and dispersed them out over a wide area. The captives' original land was repopulated by other Assyrians. Incidentally, as we see in the Gospel, the Samaritans were actually a result of intermarriage with Jews from Samaria who were not taken captive and relocated to Syrians. I just read that for years. That's how it worked. It's interesting, in John 4, Jesus comes to a well. There's a woman there. No, not just any woman. She happens to be a Samaritan woman. And she happens to be alone. Um, I don't know how good this looks. Hanging out with this Samaritan woman. That's what God did. Hell, if you're going to be saved, I'm going to show you how. I'll stoop so low, I'll go to a Samaritan woman. That gives me great hope. And I can be included in that too. The nobody of this world gets included. The Babylonian style of captivity under Nebuchadnezzar was much more of a laid-back society. The Jews were permitted to live together to worship their own God, obviously without the temple. Participate in the community and have their own business, their own homes, even thrive. Things changed. In 539, when Cyrus the Great 
king of Persia defeated Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. Again, that great puppeteer is moving whoever he will win. Why? His approach to the Jews was even more lenient, albeit a bit arrogant in his understanding as to whom was really making arrangements for the Jews to to Jerusalem. So we read in Ezra 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord, spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. This is what Cyrus, king of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any one of his people among you, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem and build a temple of the Lord. Just a tinge on the arrogant side. Of utmost importance to the Jew was the temple, since without it there could be no sacrificial system. Take note that Cyrus was not a true believer in Yahweh. His main concern was to establish strong buffer zones around his own empire, who would be loyal to him, and perhaps get one more little god of any shape or form praying for him and his personal power. In addition to allowing the option for the Jews to go back to Jerusalem, he even asked their Persian neighbors to help fund their moves. Ironically, remember the exodus from Egypt. Those neighbors also provided handouts on their way out of Dodge. And now they're doing the same thing on their way out of Babylon. God always has a way of taking care of his people. This plan for the Israelites' opportunity to go back home was not a simple hike around the neighborhood. This was a 900-mile trip. This trip would normally take about four months, as we see in chapter 7, verses 8 and 9. And that was only because the gracious hand of God was upon them, which he says eight times in chapters 6 through 8. We also need to remember that those heading north and west were not all the same people that headed south and east in their trip into captivity. Seventy years had elapsed. Many had died. Those still living were much older. And those born in captivity had never been there before. In chapter 2, verse 70, we find them settling in the towns of their ancestors that surrounded Jerusalem. That's much of the reason for the very detailed listing of the names you see in Ezra 1. They had to find out who was the true Jew who had a birth certificate that matched and could they go in. It was of extreme importance that they could prove they were a Jew and had descended from Abraham. The whole group on that first trip under the leadership of Zerubbabel numbered just short of 50,000. Finally, after four exhausting months, they were home at last, back to the promised land, just like the good old days. Well, maybe not so fast. Seventy years had lapsed, seventy years in captivity. Yes, they'd been spared of prison and slave labor while in Babylon, but it was a long seventy years with no temple or worship or sacrifices. Jerusalem had been destroyed. The houses in the towns that had been their previous homes had either been deteriorating as vacant houses 
or had been partially occupied by bad renters relocated to Syrians and other heathen residents. The priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants settled in their own towns, along with some of the other people. And the rest of the Israelites settled in their towns. In spite of upheaval, relocation, and seven years without a temple and the sacrificial offerings, surprisingly enough, God still had his hand on his people. His presence and protection remained. In chapter 3, we read, The people assembled as one man in Jerusalem, and they began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Of significance, it says, despite the fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar, even though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. In verse 8, which was basically 535 B.C., we find Zerubbabel and Yeshua, and the priests and Levites begin building the house of the Lord, appointing Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Yes, 20-year-olds. Go for it. I've shared with a number of you that Connie and I first visit to Redemption Hill three years ago last week. We ran into a couple 20-year-olds that obviously loved the Lord and were intense in what they were doing. That gives us great hope for the church. May your tribe increase. With that in mind, be watchful and totally aware that whenever God's people have victories, either the sly serpent of Genesis 3 or the roaring lion of 1 Peter 5, you will attempt to destroy whatever the Lord is doing in your life. First thing that happens as the builders laid the foundation of the temple is that the good old days jealousy showed up. Since this new temple was not as fancy and covered with gold as Solomon's temple was, verse 12 says, But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid. Comparison, jealousy, sin. Chapter 4, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the exiles were building a temple for the Lord, the God of Israel, they pretended to help. To help. These enemies were people who had been re relocated in the northern kingdom when Assyria had conquered the ten northern tribes. It goes on to say that they even hired counselors to work against them. This continued from the reign of Cyrus to Artaxerxes and even to the reign of Darius. Actually, the work of rebuilding the temple had come to a standstill for 15 years. No construction going on. And more than likely, no worship. No temporal sacrifices. The enemy even came in with demands to see a copy of the original building permit and a list of the names of the contractors. So, guys, I hope you're keeping records of that stuff uh, in case we need them. Satan was still in, involved in a demolition program, both of buildings and of human lives. But God, 
Little did they realize that from the beginning of creation, God has been the CEO of the biggest and the best construction crew that ever existed. That's when God sent in two of his prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, to not only come in and encourage the leaders to continue building, but even more importantly, to challenge them to continue their worship. Not surprising, in chapter 6, 14, we read, So the elders of the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah. They finished building the temple according to the command of the God of Israel and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The temple was completed on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Then the people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the rest of the exiles, celebrated the dedication of the house of God with joy. On the 14th day of the first month, the exiles celebrated the Passover because the Lord had filled them with joy by changing the attitude of the king of Assyria so that he assisted them in the work on the house of God of Israel. That was the first time in 70 years that they had celebrated the Passover. How long can we handle going without communion or worship or sacrifice or praise? Not 70 years. That was not simply the completion of a building project. That was one more fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. In Genesis 12, about being a blessing so that the king of Assyria would know. In the same way, uh, our Saturday church work project three months ago actually had very little to do with vacuuming chairs and planting shrubs. It had everything to do with God's covenant. So that we Gentiles might be in fellowship, encourage each other to tell the residents of Lawrence why we're planting shrubs. As we've been living, learning through Pastor J.D.'s sermons in Luke, we have a far better seed to plant. And let God determine what kind of soil it's planted on and its eventual crop. Historically, this all occurred about 516 B.C. Meanwhile, back at the ranch in Persia, uh, just note that between Ezra 6 and Ezra 7, there's a break of 60 years. That's where Esther comes in. And in a couple of weeks, I think Carrie is going to share that, how God used Esther. That's a great, encouraging story, so stay tuned in for that one. Throughout the history of God's people, we've seen time and time again where God used a variety of different type of people to advance his kingdom. Some saved and some not. As we've just heard how Cyrus and Darius were used, so now in the second return of God's people back to Jerusalem, we see God continuing to use our Xerxes. Just be careful not to get enamored with the roles or the motives that they have. Yes, God did use the king, but much of Cyrus's motivation was to use God's people in Judah as a military or political buffer, or an insurance policy, or personal production. Here we find King Artaxerxes offering anything and everything necessary for the trip. 
I decree that any of the Israelites in my kingdom, including priests and Levites who wish to go to Jerusalem, may go. You are sent by the king. Well, whoopee. That's not totally true. Now he says, with regard to the law of your God, take free will offerings for the temple of their God. Sacrifice on the temple of your God in Jerusalem. Spend the rest however you want in accordance with the will of your God. He even says in verse 26, whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. At least that's the first time he got it partially right, that he actually got honest and referred to the law of the king, which he intended all along. He's already made it very clear that Yahweh was not necessarily his personal savior, but rather your God seven times, their God two times, and the God of the heavens two times. So at best, this God, whom he was sure could do anything, simply was another foreign deity in his own mind. Since God was really committed to dwelling with his people, as he had repeatedly stated ever since Mount Sinai, it was still his personal carrying and method of getting the second group of children back to Jerusalem. And God just happened to have someone in mind, Ezra. God was busy at Ezra's work preparing Ezra for this monumental task. Not just to lead a group of Levites and priests back to Jerusalem, but to help restore the spiritual condition of a people who had once again turned south spiritually. Ezra had never been to Judah or Jerusalem. He was born in captivity in Babylon. He was a descendant of Hilkiah, the high priest, who found a copy of the law under the reign of Josiah back in Kings. I'm always amused at that in 2 Kings 22. Hey, guess what? We found a Bible in church. Uh, what else did you expect to find there? I just tell something about how long it had been. Let's keep that time real short for us here. The hand of Ezra's God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching his decrees and laws in Israel. The word teacher translates to a soper, a recorder, a scribe, a secretary, or a writer. It's also referred to a learned man who could teach what he read in God's law. Well-versed refers to his being very skillful at teaching. That was to be his major function in life. That skill, that calling, that heart is absolutely essential for God's people to grow and mature into God, who God wants us to be. And what a joy and a privilege that we have a Pastor J.D. and a Pastor Stephen who are two Ezra's. We thank our God and those two for being so consistent in reading Scripture studying scripture, praying over scripture, writing out scripture, telling us about scripture, so that we can go on the streets of Lawrence and live it out. Fellow believers, uh, 
They'll never forget to pray for these pastors. That's a selfish thing. We don't pray for those guys, and they don't do this. We're not going to get fed, and we can't afford it. Ezra, that's the man in the mission that God was sending on the same four-month trip back to the Promised Land. The Persian monarch Artaxerxes actually was used by God in wonderful ways to help Ezra in this. The king made the same offer to all the Jews in Babylon that as many as wanted could go back. He also instructed all the Persian officials west of the Euphrates River to furnish Ezra with an all-expense-paid trip. In addition, Ezra was to select and appoint his own officials, and he was to administer justice to all of them during and after the four-month trip. Uh, What an opportunity. So in 455 B.C., Ezra begins this process. Because the hand of the Lord was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Then in chapter 8, he lists the family heads and those registered with him. Most of the people were related to the families that had originally come 80 years earlier with Zerubbabel. The total number this time was 1,514, including 38 heads of families. Once selected, Ezra assembled all of them together at the Hava Canal for a final count and preparations. After careful inspection, he found out that no Levites were present. They were to have had an extremely important role in the newly established community back in Jerusalem. The people desperately needed to understand the importance of the law in their lives, especially as returnees from exile. These Levites would find the work difficult as it would not involve just teaching and reteaching, but also discipline and temple service. In actuality, Zerubbabel had returned 80 years earlier with almost 50,000 total, with very few priests. 1%. That's not very many. That had to have a very negative effect on the returnees without any regular spiritual input. That seems to be the reason that no one of the Levite volunteered to make that return. That was not a very good job description. And they saw ahead. Ezra immediately realized what effect this would ultimately have. So he called out several leaders and men of learning and sent them back to recruit attendants for the temple. According to chapter 8, verse 18, because the gracious hand was on us again, they returned with 38 spiritual leaders and 220 temple servants. At that point, Ezra proclaimed a fast to humble themselves and ask for a safe journey. Ironically, he was too ashamed to ask for soldiers and horsemen to protect as he already told the king that the hand of his God was upon him. So he didn't really need both. So he didn't say anything. Upon their arrival back to Jerusalem after the four-month journey, they did four things. They rested for three days. They weighed out and delivered the silver and gold to Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest. They sacrificed burnt offerings to the God of Israel, and they delivered the king's orders to the governors of the trans-Euphrates. Unfortunately, the joy and excitement of the journey and the new purpose of arrival didn't last very long. Beginning in chapter 9, we read, after these things had been done, the leaders... That's the ones who had been living there with Zerubbabel for 80 years, came to me and said, 
the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices, like those of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and all the other guys. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Are they just spiritual tattletales or are they accountability partners? Some days they look a lot alike. Try imagine the heart and mind of Ezra, the priest, the scribe, the well-versed student of God's law, the teacher, who knew better than anyone else what God had said in Deuteronomy 7. Do not intermarry with them, for they will turn your sons and daughters away from following me to serve other gods. Ezra knew immediately that they had married Gentiles, This was not because of racial difference, but since the people of the surrounding areas were of the same Semitic race, this was strictly religious. As a faithful student of God's word, he must have recalled what happened to King Solomon, the former Israelite king, the wisest man in the world. 1 Kings 11. King Solomon, however, had many foreign wives. And Ezra heard this, he tore his tunic and cloak, pulled his hair from his head and beard, and sat down appalled. He knew that this was just the sort of sin that had originally caused his nation to go into captivity. Would they end up going back? They'd been in bondage to Babylon, been set free, only to go back to the bondage of sin? How many times can anyone go through this without either learning or dying? Sadness is difficult. Sorrow is dreadful. Sinful sorrow is excruciating. And for a man of God like Ezra, it was beyond description. Chapter 9, 5 says, Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. In that prayer, he physically threw himself to the ground admitted to being so ashamed and so disgraced that he could not lift up his face. Readily identified with his people, even though he hadn't committed this sin personally. Four times in his prayer, he refers to them as a remnant. Growing up on a poor dirt farm, we knew that term remnant only too well. Uh, Long before John Denver uh, sang... uh, I've been raised in country sunshine and salvation. We were raised in Salvation Army and Goodwill and garage sales. A remnant was something broken. It was something partially there. It was torn. There was never anything new. That was like a piece of leftover carpet that was an odd shape or on the end of the roll or hardly saleable. But here we get a different view of the word remnant. Davis Dictionary of the Bible describes remnant like this. The portion of the people that survived the judgment sent to remove the dross or the scum from the kingdom of God. The portion of the people that survived the judgment sent to remove the dross 
from the kingdom of God. That definition maintains God's righteousness and perfect reason for justice and also identifies his extreme mercy. In this scenario, both, both were needed. Chapter 9, 8, he says, But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in giving us a remnant. Verse 13, And yet, O God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve and have given us a remnant like this. Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Unfortunately, this doesn't always happen, but the ultimate goal of human person-to-person offenses and certainly the goal with our relationship with our God is always immediate recognition of sin, then admission of guilt, and then genuine confession. Only then can there be forgiveness and healing. And that can happen, but not without its pain. Sin is forgivable, but it also has its difficult consequences, and some more costly than others. Many of us have experienced a variety of those pains. And here, God's people, we're about to see that firsthand. Chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women, and children. Notice the public sin and the public exposure and confession. They gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah said to Ezra, We've been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children. Let it be done according to the law. Verse 5, so Ezra rose up and put the leading priests and Levites and all Israel under oath to do what had been suggested. And they took the oath. A proclamation was then issued throughout Judah and Jerusalem for all the exiles to assemble in Jerusalem. Anyone who failed to appear within three days would forfeit all his property. They were serious about that. Verse 10, then Ezra the priest stood up and said, you have been unfaithful. You have married foreign women. Now make confession to the Lord and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice. You are right. We must do as you say until the fierce anger of our God in this matter is turned away from us. Incidentally, due to the large numbers and uh, time involved, and it was a rainy period. They uh, agreed to let the officials in each town settle that. Took three months before they had that all settled. What a period of time. Involved in this were 17 priests, 10 Levites, one singer, three gatekeepers, and 84 others. Verse 44 ends with, all these had married foreign women, And some of them had children by these wives. Ezra wrote nothing about what happened to these foreign women or their children. Presumably they returned to their pagan countries, divorced, single parenting. How extremely sad. In sin, everybody loses. The husbands, the wives, the children, the neighbors, the priests, 
who were serious about teaching and then restoration. I now understand why David wrote in Psalm 51, against you, O Lord, and you only have I sinned. But in the family of God, the whole church suffers. Fellow brothers and sisters, sin is devastating. Let's not do that to each other. We'll be back in a little while to worship.